Welcome to Educators Not Robots, a podcast that humanizes the educational experience. Today, we are introducing Jordan Jimenez, known by his students as Mr. Jimenez. Mr. Jimenez works at Cesar Chavez High School in Stockton, California, and is in his fifth year of teaching. He teaches English language arts for high school juniors and seniors, and AVID for juniors. He attended Fillmore Elementary School, Hamilton Middle School, and Chavez High School, where he works now. He was a Hazleton Scholarship Award recipient, an award offered to outstanding Stockton Unified School District students. He earned his AA in Interdisciplinary Studies with a focus in English at San Joaquin Delta College, his BA in English Literature at CSU Stanislaus, and his single-subject teaching credential at Teachers College of San Joaquin County. He is also very proud to have joined the ranks of Chavez High School royalty as the 2018 Teacher Prom King. We have Jordan Jimenez with us for episode five. Welcome. Thank you. Jimenez, how are you doing? <laughs> He's I'm doing okay. English teacher, avid teacher, uh, GSA advisor, and super fun person to be around. <laughs> Thank you. I just uh... There's also more, actually, it turns out. Um, I am also avid club advisor now since... since you contacted me. Avid's a club so, too? Mm-hmm. Don't know why. It's only Avid class members, but it's a club now. <laughs> Wait, can people come if they're not Avid class members? They can, but I don't think they can be members. So they can be guests in the meeting, but they can't like actively vote or anything. So wait, whose idea was it to start it as a club? It, it apparently has been a club and then uh, our coordinator was like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so I'm like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> That's interesting. I don't know. I think there's some potential there. Like maybe and in terms of like the activities that the clubs are supposed to provide for the campus, they can do some little, I know. So that was... So one of the, the teachers we actually interviewed last week, Linda Pena, who's in episode four, she's an AVID coordinator and she, we were in the same master program. One of the little projects she did for, for one of our classes was she had her kids um, put together binders that were pre-organized, like they already had the labels and everything that students would need, and then they sold them to their fellow students who were not in AVID, and then mm -hmm. they taught them how to use them. It was That like, is genius. Yeah, right? So like that could be like your first project as an AVID. I love that idea. <laughs> I have to connect you to her to see, so you guys can work it out. But it Especially was, in like this virtual space, like trying to figure things out. Yeah, exactly. That's nice. Gotta love a hustle. <laughs> Gotta love. <laughs> so, um, and then, uh, yeah. So we were just talking about this before we started recording. Clubs are kind of wonky right now because we're all virtual, and mm -hmm. we don't know what to do. <laughs> so. Yeah, you've been a teacher for over five years, roughly, right? And mm -hmm. you're you're pretty involved. Uh, in addition to being in the classroom, you do other things. How do you see this year being different now that, you know, obviously you're not going to be able to do a lot of the extracurriculars in the way that you've done them in the past. How do you see yourself overcoming that obstacle? Uh, I feel like in a lot of ways it's the same but different. Like, like there are still the same challenges. Mm -hmm. It's just we're seeing them in new ways. Like we still have the same kids who aren't uh, as good at engaging in the work or who are struggling with reading. But now it's like I also have to tackle like how do I approach this when I can't be in the same physical space as them. It's like, how do I solve 8 million tech problems while also teaching 
and also being ready for a surprise eval or drop-in from admin or like um it's it's very difficult and i feel like i'm just working so much more mm. than i ever have before among the issues you think tech is the biggest one oh i i think for sure we have a lot of students who don't have internet access and our district just purchased hotspots for every family mm. But because so many districts are doing that, there was like a long delay, and our first shipment right. of like twenty arrived. And I mean, we have just huge. tons the of kids whole who district? don't have that. How many? How many different? Uh, what's the total number look like of students? I have there? no idea. I think my school alone is supposed to get a thousand. It's massive. Yeah, it's a lot. I want to. Oh, I feel like this number is wrong. I thought I saw that it's like fifty-four thousand, but I might be wrong because that oh, seems no. that seems kind of three hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah, it seems it might be another district that I'm thinking of. Yeah, um, Manteca might be. Manteca might be. Yeah, maybe. I think Manteca is a little smaller. That's right. Yeah. But oh, like on man. top of that, we also it's not just a connectivity issue. It's like. Students don't all know how to use Google Classroom. Our students know how to don't know how to use certain websites that we're going to. So it's like the, the lack of tech literacy. Yeah. It's like trying to teach them how to use technology through technology. Right, right. Which is confusing right. for all of us. I mean, is there, yeah. is there a standardized uh, instruction for that? Or, or do you, I mean, how are you, so, how are you, how are you guys doing that? It's complicated. There's no real standard for our district. Some people are doing Zoom, some people are doing Google Meet. Um, and it sounds like we're going to be asked to move to Google Meet, uh, which at least it'll be a consistent thing for students. But um, it seems to also be buggier for kids. Like it's harder for them to have connection or to get connected or it's, it's laggy. Um, it seems like on my end, it's a lot harder to work on things and have multiple things up at the same time without a second screen. Yeah, we we have been predominantly using Google Meet at Lincoln District, and it's been a nightmare. It just slows down the bandwidth. It is very laggy. It's um, we actually so the district purchased Zoom for all of us. So we've been all this week going into next week trying to get it uploaded onto our computers and learning how to use it, which has been yeah. kind of a nightmare in itself because we should have done all this before the school year started, but. Um, yeah, Google Meet can really slow down the computers. And then, I mean, as at least as teachers, we can afford our Wi-Fi and, like, upgrade, but not for our students. So, mm -hmm. luckily, our, our district decided to go ahead and purchase Zoom because it just kind of eases up the computers a little. It's not the greatest. I, I think our district purchased it as well. I know for at least our staff meetings, we, we were able to have over 100 people. So, I assume somebody somewhere has, like, the professional account. Um, but Zoom has its own problems, too. Like, not me, but a few other teachers have had Zoom bombers happen. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and then they've had people somehow, like, a student sharing the link or something. They've come in with, like, student names yeah. uh, for, like, students who are absent. So they think it's going to be a student. The teacher lets them in. They wait, like, 10 minutes. So the teacher's in the middle of teaching. What's and then the all latest... of a sudden they say a whole bunch of awful stuff. Yeah, what's the scoop on that? What uh, Explain what the bombing is. What's going on with that? So Zoom bombing is, uh, I think it's usually done through social media where somebody who is in a class or in a Zoom will share that link out uh, or put it publicly somewhere where just a ton of people can come in and crash the Zoom and say a whole bunch of things and show a whole bunch of things. I know there's been a lot of news stories about like really heavy stuff yeah. being shared with Zoom classes. By Zoom bombers, 
Um, but the the really creepy thing for us, I think, is that it's, it has like student names attached, like students who are in your class. And so you think it's just your kid who you see every day or don't see every day if the camera's off. And then all of the sudden, it's like a bunch of anti-Semitic stuff or super racist stuff. And it's oh, like, geez. we don't need another problem right now. You know what, though? It does happen with Google Meet because that was happening to some teachers. I personally didn't have it happen, thank God, because I would have lost my mind. But it was, mm-hmm. there were teachers saying that um, students were coming into Google Meet. And then there's like a... There's like an uh, app they can get, and it's not on the regular app store. It's some kind of like dark web app store <laughs> that oh, no. uh, it allows them to take control of the Google Meet completely. <sighs> yeah, <laughs> and that was happening to some of our teachers, and they were very upset. <laughs> so, yeah. so they did like. I mean, you can. We have it now. Where, like you said, with Zoom, you let the students in as long as they're logged into the right domain. Um, Mm -hmm. but then that's been an issue because not all the students are using the device because the Mm -hmm. devices weren't working so great. But that also I learned was because the students didn't know who to contact for tech issues. So we've been trying to get that info out. So I don't, so it's funny because we think Zoom's going to help the problems with Google meet. (laughs) You're saying that people are hoping the Google meet will help with the problems with Zoom. Oh, I think Zoom is way better than Google meet. Yeah. Every experience I've had on Google Meet is, has not been a pleasant experience. So ha- I started out this year in Google Meet. Have you ever had a, um online class at, like for college? Did, have you ever taken an online uh, class? I have, but there was no like lecture or video conferencing yeah. involved at all. So I, I'm kind of intrigued by this because I feel like it's not a new concept. And yet, mm-hmm. for some reason, the way that the schools are choosing to do it, seems like a new concept i'm not sure what that is like what's going on why is it so yeah. different and why is it so much more difficult for uh public you know k through 12 to figure this out when we've been doing online teaching with universities for maybe 10 years maybe more than that what's the issue? yeah it's i think it's that live component it's just that live video is so um challenging especially for a lot of teachers who have been in the classroom a long time and aren't like the most technical to whoa, uh, aren't the most proficient in technology. Um, but even like younger teachers, more technology, hello, technologically apt people <laughs> are, are also struggling just because everything is difficult now. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's no simple part of distance learning. Nothing about it is simple. Well, I was going to say, because you asked him that, but my hybrid program was live. And so I, because at UOP, I took a hybrid um, program and we went into, we actually did it at the SAC campus. So we went to Sacramento (laughs) the first weekend of the month on Friday and Saturday we had class, but then we met every Monday and Wednesdays from seven to nine for our online classes and they were live. And I think the difference was they, because they know that they're going into this, it was planned and it's part of their programming now. They um, bought um, Canvas, I think it's called. Canvas is like the new version of Blackboard. It actually is still connected to Blackboard somehow. I don't know how it works, but it is. So it's, everything is done on Canvas. Like all of the, the meetings, the collab, they call it collaborate is done on there. Um, and it's just like Zoom in that it has breakout rooms and it has like the ability to present and do all those things, but it's all built into this one big program. And, um, and it just, 
and then all the professors are trained on it they're all told like kind of what the standard is for uploading your syllabus and it is you upload everything like it's it's mm -hmm. google google classroom on steroids it just has all the things um and that's what makes it work and then it's expected like it's it, it was a planned thing so that definitely makes a difference like this was unplanned and so schools were not prepared initially we're not prepared i think that was that was fair i think over the summer a lot of time was wasted yeah, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. and um that kind of emoji classroom trainings that everybody oh, was doing my in my district that definitely was driving me crazy and i think i don't know my husband and i talked a lot about this because i was i was like is this because i'm in the military that this is bothering me so much but then i talked to my professor at eop and he's like no it's it's not just you it's not just the military just this there i don't know if that if you saw this in your school site or in your district there's this mentality that it was like we can't make any kind of plans at all until we know exactly what the policies are and i just wanted to rip my hair out i probably did rip my hair out a couple times like it was like that's not how plans work plans are allowed to change like and just the military person in me was just like what is this crazy idea that you can't make plans because like yeah plans are meant to change they never they never go exactly as you plan them that's the whole point of making them is to be prepared for like the shortfalls and now here we are like at my district three weeks in we're barely getting zoom and nobody's been trained on it yet you know it's just like that's that was something that could have been planned before regardless of what the policy was you could have been planning for a platform to use <laughs> online is i don't know that's just and we could have been training coming up with trainings for teachers on how to use that platform what, and for students and for students how to use that platform so that's what, gonna be an issue too what policy came out that made that impossible to do a few months ago Nothing. i don't know but that seemed to be the same for my district like they were not willing to settle on any one decision about anything it felt like mm. but luckily my principal at the time like as soon as it first was announced like we're not going back in person yet uh my principal it was announced for like two weeks like i think SUSD pushed it back like two weeks. So we're not coming back for two weeks after spring break. And my principal was like, we're not coming back till at least October. So let's start figuring some stuff out. Wow. Wow. So she like before it was a district directive, she was like planning things. That's what you're trying. supposed to do. Yes. <laughs> and it's, it, it's exactly like you said, Rosalie, like plans can change. Things yes. can change. It's better to have something than nothing. You're, you're a leader. That's your entire job is to lead in those situations, to make decisions. And I think what you're describing is someone who's capable of that and had the feeling that they could do it competently. Whereas I think for the most part, there's a lot of people in these leadership type of positions who are afraid to do anything because they're scared that's going to be the wrong decision. Well, that's the point. You have to be willing to make the, the wrong decision, but you have to make a decision. And I think we're I think seeing just, a failure in that all over the place. I think it's just that mentality that, like, you can do no wrong. You can't make a single mistake right. or you're just not a good person. Right. Like, the, the, <laughs> the fear of being wrong yeah. or the fear of messing up is so prevalent in, like, every level of everything now. Ugh. Uh, when it's, like, the exact opposite of what we should be doing. Like, we should be encouraging mistakes because that's how you learn. That's how you grow and change. Yeah. But level. our leaders don't know that yet. <laughs> and especially in the, at the educational level, like we don't want our kids to be that way. And they do act that way. I feel mm. like I see it in my students. They don't want to, 
take risks because, oh, no, mm-hmm. but what if I, I get an F or what if I get scolded or whatever? And we don't create the system to allow them to fail, which is exactly what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be that safe space to try things, fall down, and then teachers are going to be there to help you get back up. And instead, we make them feel like this is the real world and you just got to go and do it right the first time. And that's not how learning works in general (laughs) at all. We're going to get into some philosophical (laughs) theory here, but I think there is a, it's a matter of, of, of presenting that culture throughout the organization at all levels, like you're saying. So if a teacher doesn't feel that they're able to fail or they don't Uh have the room to make mistakes, then I think the students will feed off of that vibe, that energy of like, oh, okay, the teacher can't do things different. We shouldn't be trying to do things different. The admin feels like they can't do anything you know, different. They have to remain within the boundaries provided that have already been set traditionally. And it just mm-hmm. doesn't allow for adaptation and, and, and just making improvements. It just, you just sit there and you become reactive. And I think it's just, it's a crazy thing yeah. to witness that. It's just so... Oh, it's frustrating. <laughs> and I, I think you made a great point. Like, it's the students who are the ones who really suffer from it. Like, because every single person is so afraid, they never get that. Like, I don't really know how we got that it's okay to fail or it's okay to make a mistake or where we learn that. But it feels like none of the current generation feels that way. And maybe it's maybe it is social media. I know a lot of people like to blame social media. But because of how quickly things spread, they don't want a mistake made being spread. Mm. Right. That could be it. I mean, it mm. is, there is, I mean, and, and the internet does work in that way that once you've it's published online, it's free for the taking. Um, mm-hmm. But I think what's interesting, what's going on with like the whole thing right now about cancel culture is there are discussions starting to happen about like, at what point does canceling someone become toxic? Because we have to give people room to grow and change and and kind of the same thing like what mistakes are forgivable or what mistakes maybe in the moment are unforgivable but can be forgivable later like what's worthy of coming out of that there has to be something a person can do to overcome something they've done no matter how bad so maybe i don't know maybe the generation will when by the time they're our our age we'll have figured it out because at least those conversations are happening I hope that they're not for nothing. <laughs> well, I, I definitely feel for the kids, uh, like, when you, when you point that out, it's like, yeah, all my mistakes growing up were anonymous. I don't have to <laughs> ever, like, no one has any record whatsoever of the dumb stuff I said when I was in middle school, unless yeah. it's in the yearbook somewhere. But <laughs> I feel like they don't get that benefit anymore. Like, they have all this stuff getting published online, and then it's spread. You can literally go viral worldwide. Can you imagine yeah. making like some kind of celebrating failures and like you see it like being played on like television? I mean, it's just wild. It happens. It's, it's literally happening where kids do stuff and it gets broadcast by news channels. Like what? What the hell's going on? Yeah. Yeah. No, that should not happen. And oh. it's like that idea of like you always think back of like a really specific memory from like middle school where you did something that totally embarrassed you, and then you'll talk about it with a friend that'll be like, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'll have like a flashback in the middle of the night and like break out in a cold sweat. Yes, yes. Um, and all our ev- all the evidence has been destroyed. <laughs> yeah, but now if there's a video, it's it's yeah. everywhere. Yep. It's and I know it's happened to like teachers at my school, they've been recorded doing things. 
Like there was a teacher who got very angry and uh, had like an, an outburst of anger at his students and it got recorded and it went around. Like oh I've seen the video, God. students have shared it. It's, so it's interesting because on the, you know, on one hand it's like, well, we are capturing some really awful things that should be documented and, and, and mm -hmm. they should be dealt with. And then on the other hand, you have situations where, hey, that's a pretty natural thing to do. Like every now and then mm -hmm. people might, you know, express anger. So uh, is that something that we want to punish them for? I don't know. Like there's it's it's just there's so much more awareness of every little thing that's happening at all times. Yeah. 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 And but that's a good point. Like what do we want to call out? What do we want to like just kind of gently challenge? It's right, like finding right. that line is really difficult. And I think as educators, the system isn't set up to let us play with that. Like it's just that there's some areas where I think there's autonomy. I think especially more so now than maybe um, some of the veteran teachers, like the Gen X teachers, there was they kind of came up in a time where there was like really strict rules about state testing and, you know, a lot of policies about how they could teach or could not. And we've learned from that. Um, or at least I, I feel like the charter school system is what taught leaders, like you've got to give teachers more autonomy, mm -hmm. but there's still this resistance to change the system. That's very outdated. The sitting in the classroom in rows and, you know, having class from 7.20 till 3 p.m. And like, I mean, we're, we're so, we're still so strict on certain things. It doesn't give us that space to try something new. I only get 55 minutes per class. There's only so much I can do in 55 minutes. Now you teach a block, but oh, <laughs> but yeah, what the? Well, heck? we're currently only teaching an hour too, and it feels like I have no time to do anything. Yeah, because you were you, you guys used to get 90 minutes, right? Mm -hmm. 93. Yeah. What was the justification for uh, shifting to that from block? Um, it. I think it was just the minimum amount of minutes for distance learning is 240, and we have four classes, so they're like, let's go minimum. <laughs> I can, I can actually see that because I know our school, too, is trying to minimize the screen time. Now, we didn't adjust our schedule. We're using the exact same schedule we use when we're in person. But um, I know that we've been given the space to figure out asynchronous and synchronous, which is going around a lot. But like figuring out if you can get the kids off the screen for a little while, you know, what can you what can you assign that they can do independently so they can just get get a break? Um, and that's really hard, too, because we're all new to this. So. We're trying to figure it out and different content areas have different problems with that which i can't even <laughs> oh my gosh like talking to the yeah. science teachers i just i just feel so bad for them like as oh, an yeah. english teacher it's pretty simple i think compared to a science teacher who's like how am i supposed to do a lab on distance learning <laughs> like they don't have or like tools. PE teachers oh yeah yeah we have we have kids currently taking like weight training <laughs> from with distance learning it's like, I don't know what weights they're using. Are they lifting up their siblings or are they, <laughs> who knows? Their chairs in their kitchen. <laughs> oh, it's just... Their laptops. So, so the thing that, okay, you were saying that there's a minimum amount of hours required. Whose minimum is that? Is it the state's minimum? State? It was the state minimum. The okay. state has had all sorts of guidelines thrown at us at the very last second. Right. Like yeah. that one about attendance and yeah. the... From like a week or two ago. Yeah. The yeah, reason, that um, shit's crazy. <laughs> but it, it's like SB something. I don't know. Oh, my God. That drove everybody. I, oh, my God. Yeah. 
and now we have to account for break every minute break that down for us. tell us what that is i was hearing about this a little bit here and there i was like uh, i don't even have the energy to listen to what this is right now so go yeah. ahead and break that down for us um i feel like i don't even have the best Rosie, understanding of it Rosie but from it. <laughs> but from what i understand it's um we now have to make a a mark in attendance for every student every day so it's no longer just present or absent. It's synchronous for my district, asynchronous. Uh, you made contact with them, but they weren't. They didn't do their classwork. And there was another one. Oh, unverified. So it's just an absence. Yeah. Um, so now it takes like 75 clicks to do an attendance. Yes. Um, which is frustrating. And on top of that, it also mandated that we account for every single minute, asynchronous and synchronous for yes. every student, for every class, every week. Every week. And that's like a form we have to print out and sign every week, at least in my district. Yeah, that's what they told us too. So yeah, we have to, you have to click. And what people don't realize, I think with high school teachers, we have like 150 plus teachers. I mean, mm -hmm. teachers, students, we have 150 plus students. So we're literally checking boxes off one student at a time on whether they were present or not. And then checking off whether they were engaged or not and it's just it's it takes time and it, we're already strapped because we're spending most of our hours either in the classroom teaching which is something else I think teachers I, I think people who are not teachers don't understand we're only contracted for teaching time we're not contracted okay. for planning time so when people are like, when, you know, they try to throw it at us that we're being selfish for wanting more pay or wanting more benefits or whatever, it's, it's like, you don't understand the planning happens outside of our contracted hours because contracted hours are when you are engaged with the student with maybe you get one prep, which is the, the length of a, of a class period. But I challenge anybody to plan a whole lesson in one hour. Like it just doesn't oh, yeah. happen. It it's not realistic. It's not realistic. Unless you want and, the lesson to suck. <laughs> I can <laughs> I can do a real sucky lesson in an hour and, and do it. But if you want a good quality education, lessons that are really going to engage your children, then you should be demanding that your teachers are getting more time to plan or getting paid for that time. So anyway, yeah. with all that said, we're now trying to plan for a style of teaching we have not been trained in, which is distance learning. So we're trying to figure it out as we go. And now we have to spend that extra time checking off individual boxes for 150 mm -hmm. plus students. And then we have to write out our lessons in detail and account, like you said, for every minute of what they were doing. And by the way, we have to sign it in blue ink so that we can prove we didn't copy it because God <laughs> forbid that we be treated like professional adults who have integrity. <laughs> it's just, yeah. oh I mean, we don't we don't treat our kids like they are, real people who have integrity right or at least from like the district's perspective for every district exactly and i think we micromanage the kids I, I feel like district policies and state policies force us to micromanage the kids and then we get micromanaged mm -hmm. as if we are children and then it's just it's just just it's it's a vicious cycle and i i know that when i was new to teaching um i used to get mistaken for being a student and when that would happen people were super rude to me, adults, staff. They would say, what are you doing here? What do you want? And I would say, um, excuse me, uh, I'm just here to drop off this. You emailed me to drop this paperwork off and I'm here for that. I don't understand why you're upset with me. Oh, you're a teacher? I'm sorry. And I'm like, hold on a minute. 
Why would you talk to a student like that? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> what is the matter with you? That is. I have had this conversation so many times with so many younger coworkers. It happened to me too. I started when I was 22. One day I, I forgot my lunch at home. So I went to leave campus with my car from the teacher parking lot. And I was stopped by a CSM and like talked to in a really negative way. Like, where do you think you're going? And it's what's like, CSM? To lunch? Did you say what CSM? Yeah, what's a CSM? Oh, CSM, uh, Campus Security Monitor. Okay. I, thought you, I thought you said, like, which CSM? Like, I was about to say a name. <laughs> I could, though. He still works there. I was like, Command Sergeant Majors. <laughs> That's what that means for me. <laughs> I was like, whoa. <laughs> but basically, he acted like a Command Sergeant Major. That's right. how they talk to you. Like, they're so rude. And then I've had students tell me that. And I feel like students feel, they feel comfortable sharing um, experiences like that with me because I don't talk to them that way. Um, and they'll mm-hmm. tell me like, yeah, you know, I hate going to the, this office because the secretary's super rude. And I, and, and the thing is, is like, your job is to work for the students. Why would you not treat them with respect? Like if they, if you have to f- be face to face with students, you should be creating a calm, respectful environment, not a hostile one. Mm-hmm. And I just, and I, and I tend to believe them. So sometimes when I brought this up, like, oh yeah, the students say that certain people are really rude. They're like, oh, you know how students exaggerate. And I have to remind, and then I tell them, excuse me, like I've been mistaken for a student. And yes, those people are rude. Like they're not, yeah. mm. the students, why do we, we just always believe students are lying, which is another problem I think. And it's like, no, they're not lying. Because when I was mistaken for being a student in my first year, staff member who, members who didn't know who I, who I was, they were incredibly rude to me. And when they mm-hmm. found out I was a teacher, their tune changed. And that just, to me, that was, I, that's not okay. You don't talk to, to anybody that way. And then you wonder why the students talk to you like that. <laughs> like, oh, they're, they're disrespectful. Well, yeah, you yeah, don't deserve like, respect. <laughs> like, I don't... When you're operating under the assumption that somebody is going to do something bad or something wrong, like why, why are we expecting them to do something before they've even done anything? Yeah super frustrating i get super frustrated and i feel like all of this how did we get into this conversation because these silly policies that are coming down are just examples of how teachers are not trusted to do the right thing and and it and it does trickle down to the students when teachers are treated a certain way the students get treated that way as well it becomes a cycle and i don't and you know people need to understand that um it's not right I definitely try to be self-aware of it, obviously, because we're having the conversation. We're kind of the kinds of people who are aware that we can't treat others the way we're being treated. Um, but for some people, it's hard because the job itself is overwhelming. You don't you forget to think about this, the things we take for granted, like how we interact with others or how we take our bad day out on our students. If you know, with maybe without even realizing that we're doing it sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, it's such an isolating job kind of get isolated within yourself and you don't see how you're impacting other people with your behavior um because the job's yeah. hard it's a hard job and now it's they want so to high stress oh my gosh super high stress so you're you're coming up here with the you know five years plus now and mm-hmm. uh word on the street and i've mentioned this before is that um that's kind of the time frame when teachers make a decision are they going to stick around for more yeah. of this what are, do they think they can continue forward in this uh, particular position or are they going to try to make some sort of, um, you know, make some moves to go... An escape. 
<laughs> so where 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 are you at in your escape plan at the moment? Where are you? Um, I'm I'm still at, I'm still going to teach. All right, uh, at least for now. Okay. Um, but I also I, I'm becoming more and more aware that like this is not the career that I can make it to retirement with. Wow. Like I I don't feel like I can do this when I'm like 65, like some of our teachers are. Hmm. Um, I just I can't see myself doing that and like being happy and healthy and fine. Um, but I do, I do really value my job. I really value like the relationships I'm building with kids and the changes I'm able to actually see with them. So I think what I'm going to say this, like there are no problems with any other job, but I think I want to get into counseling. Um, I think that's a much more manageable role for me. And I kind of feel like I do it already a little bit with my kids because I'm an avid teacher and I'm not just teaching them content all day long. Um, and I feel like that would be a really good fit for my personality. And um, I, it, it's not less work, but it's different work. And it feels less controlled, like how uh, it feels as a teacher. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I know you've talked to me about that before. Um, and I, I do want to say, I think that counselors are very much ignored for the role mm-hmm. that they play in the lives of students. Like when, uh, for one, a lot of times counselors are overburdened. They Just like teachers have too many students, counselors are assigned too many students, so they can't always build the relationships they need to build to help the students pull through with whatever issues they're having. But they get one-on-one time with students. They get one-on-one time with students that we don't get as teachers. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know. And then they, they're the ones who are helping them with their college planning and their career planning and keeping them on track with their grades and having contact with their parents. And you know, they, they deal with the discipline issues but, and the academic issues, but they also deal with sometimes the positive things like scholarships and awards. And you know, they, they, they really are a huge part of students' lives. And, and we really don't talk a lot about what they do. And um, I don't know, for people who are listening, like counselors do a lot. We don't, we don't talk about them a lot, but they are part of the education system for sure. Um, they just I know they get pushed aside by teachers a lot too. Like, oh, the counselor just haven't done it yet. And we complain. But a lot of time we don't realize like we're overloaded with students, but they're really overloaded with mm-hmm. students. I think yeah. all of ours at our site have like 500 kids or something like that, yeah. which right. is just a lot. I think the recommended number is something around 200. Yeah. It, yeah. And even that's a lot. <laughs> and that's a lot of students. Like that's, I mean, and they're, especially when you, your job is to have one-on-one time with them. They don't do classes with these students. They have to meet with them one-on-one. They have to make appointments with 500 students <laughs> you know, one-on-one mm-hmm. and then what happens when you overburden them is they don't get they're not able to get to every single student and then that becomes a problem because the ones who get missed are the ones who need them the most mm-hmm. and so they get yeah counselors are overburdened too so what aspects of counseling that you've observed uh, is drawing you towards that direction uh, i really love the focus on like college and career that I've seen at least at my campus by um, our head counselor because she's the avid counselor. Um, I know she has great relationships with the students that she has. And it really, like like you were saying a second ago, Rosalie, it's like that individual time that we really don't get much of. And if we do, it's, it's always in passing. It's like during passing period or at lunch, whenever somebody comes by or right after school or right before class. But it's never like an extended, this is your time. This is our time to work on whatever you need to work on. 
And I really, really like that. And it's, and it's Avid that, that kind of made me realize how much I like it because that's kind of what we do. It's like we, we start forming our, our bigger life plans and we start working on like personal skills and how to talk to people, how to send an email. So many things that we take for granted um, that aren't really taught anywhere. Like we don't teach computer classes anymore mm. or, yeah. or typing classes. So it's like I try to build some stuff in where they're using those computers and typing things and they don't always realize and they don't like it because they don't know how to do it well. But it's like there are so many little things that we're just not doing for kids. And I think being a counselor would allow me to do a lot more of them, aside from having like 6,000 kids on my caseload. <laughs> oh, my sister is actually in grad school right now. Uh, she's pursuing her counseling um, degree, master's degree um, in Virginia. And nice. she used to teach through TFA and then she was doing that uh actually she got a job after she did TFA she got a job doing some sort of resource management for the for a district where she would connect uh low income families to different types of uh community resources and that's when she started saying she you know she started getting interested in doing the counseling thing and, and that's where she's headed now so anyway hit me up if you want to we can talk <laughs> try to oh, connect, for sure. get y'all connected too but but kind of like how you just said it, it's it's also like figuring out stuff for low-income families. Mm -hmm. Whenever we first went distant, it was our counselors who were doing like the majority of the legwork, reaching out to these oh, kids, wow. doing home visits, oh, and like that. really truly seeing like if they weren't checking in, seeing if they were alive sometimes, or wow. seeing if they were okay. And it's just like it's it's that humanity aspect that we so often don't get to do in the classroom because it's all grades, 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 grades control, control, control. Yeah. Yeah, they did that for in our district, too. They were having during the first closure. I know that they were doing a lot of work reaching out. We would I mean, I remember for us, it was literally just like report students who haven't been showing up to the counselors and then we'll take care of it from there. And I remember mm -hmm. thinking like first I was kind of like, thank goodness, because I already was like loaded with trying to figure out how to do the closure. And then, but then on the other side, I thought, oh my gosh, I know that they have, a, you know, hundreds of students on their caseload. And when I found out, yeah, they were um, making calls to individual parents. And if they couldn't get a hold of them, they were trying to find emergency contacts and they were sending mm -hmm. resource officers out there and they were having to make reports. And I was just like, oh man, these counselors are, they're really getting put to work right now. Not that they don't normally, but it was, they were hit hard by the pandemic too. Everybody was, but and, and I think, I think. Especially hard though, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, in a, and I think what's especially important for me is just for people understanding that counselors are such a huge part of the high school education system, mm -hmm. especially um, because we need them. I mean, we teachers rely on them for a lot of things and students rely on them for a lot of things. And there's a reason why we have them. Um, definitely is something else that needs to be looked at in terms of reform. <laughs> like when we talk about like smaller class sizes and, and better scheduling for teachers and, but then also counselors too, we need more counselors and they need to have a, a lighter load if we're, they're going to do their job effectively. So do you, do you have a program in mind that you're looking at or, or any program that I, you're currently? Honestly, I haven't even really <laughs> dug too deep into it. Are you, are you from, um, are you from this area? Are you from California? I am born and raised Island? in Stockton. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. He went to Chavez High. Did you go to Chavez? Yeah. Oh. I went to the high school I teach at. So oh, that's, man. that's really fun. Well. It's also really weird sometimes when there are like teachers who I had in class. who I'm like now at the same level as them. 
So it's, you, it's interesting. You, do you see your future being here uh, for the rest of your life? You sort of have an idea about that yet? Um, yes and no. I really love, I, like, I love this city. Mm-hmm. I think it has so much potential. The people here, there's, there's so many people with so many things to bring to the table. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it is very frustrating, like thinking of politics, local politics, national politics. It is just so frustrating um, that sometimes I just want to like go away. But where I think you go that's, away? that's probably true wherever you are. So yeah. I don't know that it even matters. In your imagination, though, what, what, where would be the ideal location then? Where would you head towards then? Um, well, I know, I know there's all sorts of problems there, but like the L.A. area, always okay. loved okay. it. No, that's cool. Um, New York, always loved it. I've never visited yet. I need to do that. Um, probably one of those two if I, if I made a big move. Just looking for a bigger, sort of more diverse mm-hmm. and more metropolitan, I guess, something something like yeah. that. Yeah. I know. And I, I like the busyness, I think, too. Like, mm. there's always people doing stuff. Maybe not in times of, like, COVID-19, but I, li- I like the busyness normally. Of, like, just hustle and bustle, people moving around. So what do you think keeps you in Stockton? Uh, mostly my family. Uh. But it's also, like, like I was saying, that, like, potential for things here. Like, I want to be a part of that. I want to be one of those driving forces making change but i just don't have the time because i'm a teacher <laughs> but you are though that's the point you're yeah. doing something that actually matters for the future of the city yeah I you're think right so. i think so and i i was gonna say I, I think i talk about this a lot with anthony but also like other teachers and stuff is sometimes i do think about um like for me a big thing is like the innovative schools so like high tech high in san diego um, actually, my professor at UOP was the founding uh, principal of um, Patino School of Entrepreneurship in Fresno, which is a super oh. cool school. It looks so cool. And these are schools that like they're innovative. So they change their scheduling. They um, I know like the um, I think both High Tech High and Patino, they they don't have classrooms. They have workshops. So students, mm. they they kind of work in these little pods, like these little cohorts and um and they kind of determine their schedule and they determine what they're going to work on. And they and then the rooms are like reserved for whatever they need. And um, they move about the building like they they go around and they're they're doing like a project based learning type of things. And they're um, the teachers work more as like advisors and facilitators. And they're there to just kind of facilitate the learning, but not really um, doing lectures or anything like that. And it's just like, oh my God, I would love to work at a school. Like, like that's the kind of teacher I want to be. That's where I feel like I would be the best version of myself Mm. as a teacher is if I was at a school like that, but schools like that don't exist in Stockton. And so it becomes like this, this really hard, like I could just move away to like a big city that has all the the cool things and the the cool schools that I want to work at, or do I stay at this city and maybe hopefully become part of a collaborative effort that brings a school like that to the city. I don't know, like it's not happening right now. So then it makes me feel like maybe I should just leave. <laughs> it's like, it's hard. It's really hard. And I always, yeah, I, um, yeah. sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I always tell Anthony that my work is in Stockton. Like that's like my, my mantra is like my work is in Stockton. <laughs> yeah. Like you feel like you owe it to the city a little bit, right? Yeah, exactly. That- because I grew up here too. So like I moved around from Stockton to the Manteca Lathrop area and it's, I didn't want to come back. And then I did come back and I'm like, I can't leave like this. It's mm-hmm. not different than it was when I was here. Maybe there's a little, there's some things that change like, but 
I just feel, I feel like I, I have an obligation to do something now that I've grown up and become educated and a professional and experienced things that I need to do something here. And it's also like once you've seen the problems, the real problems in your community, how can you leave them and be, be like okay with keeping them problems? Exactly. Yeah, that's a, it's a heavy thing to think about for sure. I think the important aspect of it though would be to maintain context and to sort of understand um, your energy and your effort can go in many different ways and still contribute to that same uh, cause or that same mission, I think. So for example, even mm -hmm. if you weren't teaching, uh, maybe you're counseling, you're still helping students. And then I think that, you know to make it even more broad, if you were to do that still within this county, I think you're making a difference uh, for the city of Stockton in, in a, you know, a less direct way, but still important way. So I, I think for me personally, as long as I can identify the mission, um, it's easy for me to understand how that mission will reach those people eventually. And so I can still feel positive about, you know, what, what my actions are. Um, yeah. Now, when I lose sight of the mission, or you know, and the broader mission, then it, then that becomes concerning. It's like, well, what am I? What? How does this really contribute? And then I'll then I'll start feeling like, ah, it it really doesn't. But I think as long as you can make that connection, uh, you should be able to have some peace, <laughs> even if you're not in the trenches. You know. Yeah. It's, it's not, I think that's another good thing about yeah. a good thing to think about too is like I'm not just a teacher because I'm in a classroom. Mm -hmm. Like I teach so much outside of the classroom. I had a kid call me the other night at like 1130 at night. He's in college now and he needed help with his homework. Aww. So it's like, I, I have no monetary obligation to help him. <laughs> I have no, no reason to be up at 1130 on a school night helping somebody with a college class. But I still like, I have that drive to help people whenever they, whenever they need help. And I, it doesn't matter that I'm a teacher because I'm going to teach people things all the time. I think about that, too, with like I found out I didn't even know um, for Stockton scholars, you can sign up to be like a mentor to a student mm -hmm. in the program. And someone had told me about that. And I was like, oh, let me get the website. And then I <laughs> and then I was like, when am I going to have time for that? <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I can't even make time for my own students because of all the obligations I have and the restrictions that I work under. And like, I want to be able to help a Stockton scholar get through that program and, you know, finish college because that's something mm -hmm. too. It's, we focus so much on getting the kids in college. We don't think about whether they stay. And that's something that I know really bothers me. Like if a school brags about, we got this many kids accepted in a college, but then I'm like, but how many of them graduated? Like, what are your numbers in terms of your kids who went to college and finished? Because yeah. that is what's really important. And then if we bring in like race or mm -hmm. class, exactly, it, it's even, it's even more devastating to see like how we fail these kids yeah. by like pushing them to, get a high score on a test but not really learning anything or being able to to do something um that's why again i, I really like avid because it's all about like building a, yourself as a better student it's like learning how to study and learning how notes work and why they work and learning how to keep yourself organized and and run a calendar or a planner and it's just like i feel like i would have been a much better student if i had a program like that or some person who was teaching me just how to learn mm. Yeah. Do you, do you think that you 
I don't know, would you consider yourself like a very studious or academic person when you were a kid on your own or? Oh, oh no, I was, I was, I still kind of am the worst student. Uh, <laughs> Rosalie, you could probably testify to that a little bit. Uh, I'm a, a big procrastinator. I'm never like prepared enough or I wasn't. Um, and, but I feel like I, that's part of the reason why I really want to just take some classes just to learn because I feel like I now have those systems that I needed then to to keep myself on track or to to really make sure that I'm learning and understanding what I'm doing. Well, you um, said whereas that, in the past it was just a mess. The first thing but, I thought was, okay, that's surprising. And then I was like, well, then it's also not surprising because it's not, you striking me as a very thoughtful and intelligent person. So you might have it might have been the case that you just weren't they just weren't able to reach you and you were you were just didn't feel engaged as a student. Mm-hmm. Um, and by what you've described so far, I think that probably was more than likely the case and not that you were a bad student, but just that you didn't have the right direction. To, uh, you know. I think that is a great way to frame that. And I, I wish we would frame that myself included. I wish we would frame it that way more for students who we have now. Like we have those kids who struggle in school, but it's not, it doesn't mean they're dumb. It doesn't mean they don't understand or can't understand. It just means we haven't found the right way to get to them yeah. or the right way to help them. I definitely, that is something that really resonates with me because my daughter is gifted, very gifted. And um, I feel like she's, it's one of those things where once you've observed and witnessed a gifted child, you can't unsee them when they're around you. And I've had every year a handful of students that I really believe are gifted. And they are the ones who are failing. They're the ones who are not getting, and this whole idea, and I, and I struggle with this with my daughter too, when I try to talk to teachers about how it's a learning, it's, it's, it's supposed to be considered a special need because it's not that the, it's not just, it's not just a high level of intelligence. It's the child learns differently than other students. And, um, a lot of times it's just like, oh, well, we just need to challenge her or we need to challenge them more. And I'm like, it's no, it, it, you need to give them a, a, a learning environment that meets their learning needs because the way they learn is very inquiry based. It's very project based. They need to be allowed to figure things out on their own. They don't want the answers given to them. They don't want you to tell them the steps. They want to figure it out. You know, like if you're not letting them um follow their curiosity they're going to get bored and that's very different than challenging it's it, it might be challenging for the teacher because i think teachers are control freaks like it's like yeah it's, that's, that's what i was about to say it's like it's like no like i need to have this lesson and they're going to follow my rules and they're going to do it exactly the way i tell them and, and that's not how gifted children learn and and honestly i and i've gone to uh the california association for the gifted um conference earlier this year before the closure and um and i've been reading a lot about gifted education and um some of the i feel like this is true for all things when you look at like different modifications for english language learners or some of the modifications that they talk about for like um students with special needs or uh, special learning disabilities um, I'm like, oh man, that would actually work for all the students. Like this isn't mm-hmm. just something, you know, and the gifted learning too. It was a lot of inquiry based activities and lessons on how to like let go and let the student take lead. And I was like, all kids need this because one of the things that drives me crazy is my kids are constantly, my students, they're constantly waiting for me to tell them what to do. And it's something that they can figure out themselves, but they've never been allowed to. 
And so I get really frustrated for my own daughter. And then when I get these students at the high school level that I can tell like, oh, you are gifted. Like you are the kind of student who needs to follow the curiosity and needs to be allowed to explore. But by the time they're in high school, they've already decided or have been told and they believe it that you're just, you just don't know how to behave. You're just not an academic student. Um, you know, they're, you're the problem kid. And so then they just continue to be the problem kid and it's because they're bored. And yeah. so I, it was, and I actually had a student one time that I really believed he was gifted. I was so convinced one day I was telling him about my daughter, about her being gifted. And then he said, you know, believe it or not, I was identified as gifted in third grade. And I said, I do believe you. And then, and then the other students in the class were like, yeah, right. And he, he was like, no, really, I was in the, I was in gate. I used to go on the field trips. Like he was like, you know, and then later, um, and I said, no, I believe you. I, I 100% think you're gifted. He came up to me later and he was like, were you being serious? And I said, yes, I am being serious. And he was just like, and so he started telling me a little more about, yeah, I, you know, the teacher saw that I was getting my work done really quickly and they tested me and this, mm -hmm. and I could tell like, he just, he wanted to talk about it because he was proud of it. It was like a proud moment for him. And at this point he was a senior, he was failing most of his classes and he was a clown. He was always, you know, but it just, it's so frustrating for me, the misconceptions about what students are and are not capable of and what they're willing to learn or able to learn and how we restrict them. Um, and especially gifted students, they're the ones, and then we know the numbers there too that uh, students of color are less likely to be identified as gifted. Yep. They're less likely to be identified as AP students. And a lot of times the students I see that come through that I think are gifted happen to be Hispanic students, black students, um, South Asian students. You know, it's it's the, they have a little more melanin in their skin than the others. So um, there's definitely an underlying issue there. And it, it, we... We're just doing and such I think, a huge disservice. I think we have to address that underlying issue, which is white supremacy. Yes. Like white supremacy has infected every single organization we have in this country. Absolutely. Uh, at some level, and especially in education, that obsession with control comes from white supremacy. Uh, you're not allowed to challenge your teachers. You're not allowed to cha challenge your administrator. Um, and it's, it's just like, why are we continuing this system that just doesn't work exactly i remember seeing that once that the description of the way our current education system is is like we what we teach is compliance we're teaching mm -hmm. kids to be compliant to follow rules and to do what they're told and in a time that we're in right now that's not a skill that's going to work you know when we talk about the 21st century skills they need to be critical thinkers. They need to be problem solvers. They need to be able to inquire about things, to, to generate ideas, to create things. Um, one of the things I've seen is there's a lot of talk about how there's like a need for like a lot of vocational jobs, which I think currently, yes, there is. There's a lot of need for people who can do vocational work, but a lot of that work is becoming mechanized and there is going to come a point where if it can be done by a machine, it's going to be done by a machine. And if we're yeah, not, were... if we're not Sorry. teaching our kids to, to be imaginative, creative, to be entrepreneurial, to like, to, to be able to do those kinds of things, we're setting them up for failure because what, what are they going to do if a job, if a machine takes over their job, 
it's no. it's something that people don't want to face. They want to think that these jobs are going to be here forever. Already so many jobs have been lost to machinery and tech, you know, it's and it's just going to keep happening. So uh, there was just a piece on the news, like maybe half an hour, an hour or two ago. I don't know how long ago um, where it was about the check in system at one of the major airports in New York. It is now just entirely automated, entirely self check in. So all of those people who uh, who probably felt really secure in their jobs because it seems like it would be such an important thing, like getting your bags to the right place and making sure you have the right information. They're now just gone and there's just a little kiosk there. Yeah. Um, and it's it, that idea, like these jobs are great and they are needed, but not all of them are like careers. Right. Because but, of the way we're moving. And they're not, and they're, um, they can be replaced. If it can be replaced by technology, it will be. I mean, we don't even, we're getting to a point where we don't need cashiers anymore. You know, that's yeah. become an issue with the self-checkouts. And some people say, just don't use them because then, and it's like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> people are going, It's also just so convenient. It's super convenient. It, it's, there's a reason why it was developed. There's going to be a time where we don't use cashiers anymore. And it's not even just the, the self-checkout kiosks. It's um, online um, shopping has also mm -hmm. gotten rid of the need for the cashier. You know, they're slowly going to go away and we we need to prepare our students for what is gonna be available, which is gonna be jobs that require creativity, critical thinking, leadership skills, problem solving skills, like all these things that we're not teaching in a system that's made to make students comply. And yeah, do you have to sit in your row and not talk when the teacher's talking, not move around, don't fidget, don't blink, make sure you don't fall asleep. Don't eat your chips. I don't care if you're hungry. Just sit there and listen. Yeah. Don't wear pajamas. Uh, don't like. And, yes, that's important. <laughs> yeah. It's like, and and make sure that like you only do what you're told and nothing more. That's no. terrible. Like we're. Um, we can't do that. My anymore. my district my union has a secret Facebook group where it's just union members, so they usually share like information. They'll ask questions and stuff there. Earlier today, a teacher from my district was like. What is the legality of kicking out a student from your Zoom call when they don't, or when they refuse to turn on their camera? Um, hmm. And it was like, it's that obsession with control again. Like, yes. why do we need to have this argument? Why is this the hill we're going to die on? Right. Um, and like thinking about my childhood, I would have been devastated if I had to have like my camera on so everybody can see my room. I would still kind of be devastated. My room's a mess right now. <laughs> yeah. um, and it, it's it's just like, if we are wanting these kill these kills these kids to do <laughs> great things, if we're wanting them to be successful, why are we limiting them based on stuff that has nothing to do with their chance of success? Like right. pajamas. What if it's cold? Or what if you woke up late? Would you rather be, them be late and spend half an hour getting ready? Right. Why does it matter? Yeah, I think is like I think what people seem to either not realize or forget is. There's a difference in how a person performs when they're doing when they're doing it just because they're being told to do it, or you know, like if you expect people to do what they're told just because they've been told to do it, they're not going to perform the same than if they develop the in, internalized desire to do the thing that they should be doing. So if you have mm -hmm. a student who ends up getting a job where they need to be dressed a certain way that that has to be a choice like it has to they, they have first of all choose to go into that career and then they have to they have to have the internal integrity to 
to want to do the right thing. You can't learn integrity being told what to do all the time. That's not integrity anymore. Integrity is doing the right thing because because even though no one told you to. And I tell my students, integrity is doing the right thing even when nobody's watching. When you're by yourself, you still do the right thing. If you're doing it for a reason because somebody told you to because there's a reward, there's, oh, that's a whole other one too. Oh, my gosh. But, like, it just, it's, <laughs> That's another can of worms. Oh, <laughs> my God. The whole, like, because we had to do the, the hold harmless during the closure and people were, parents and teachers were just, like, students are not motivated because they're not getting a grade. They need to be rewarded. And even though there's been study after study after study for decades that shows, like, rewarding people does not create productivity it's when people feel like they have a purpose there was like that famous study i think it was like over a little over 10 years ago where they um they actually were doing a study on happiness i think it was and and money so they were looking at like they they found that there's like a cap to how much money a person makes and fifty thousand dollars yeah fifty thousand like people and they study people all over the world so like the equivalent of making fifty thousand dollars a year um is the cap for when people are happy. So if somebody goes from making 30,000 a year to 50,000 a year, their happiness increases. But anything beyond that, it it doesn't increase anymore. And in fact, it at some point starts to go down. It's, it's just diminishing marginal returns. Like if you have two pieces of cake, maybe it's cool. But then once you get to five pieces of cake, yeah. Anything yeah, more than four pieces is kind of, you know. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, I think I could have done without the extra five, six, seven pieces of cake. You know? it's, the, just not as, it's just not as important to your well-being. The cake starts to lose its value it's, exactly. it's, if it's always expected to be there. So what they found, though, was what did increase happiness in this study was when the people were given a purpose. And so when they, they so like different factories and like all these different employers, um, they were like, they were um, told to start facilitating like discussions and and um, protocols that encouraged their employees to like to to develop some kind of pride in their work. And it was different for like the type of work that they did. But it was like these little systems were put in where they were kind of used positive reinforcement, I guess you can say, and just teaching them to, to kind of um, to do their work and then to, to maybe share what they did to help them understand like, oh, the reason why you do this specific task in this factory is because it impacts these things. So the employers had to share like what each individual job did for the greater good of the company. And, um, and they started seeing productivity go up and, and happiness went up. And so all these, every time I hear a teacher say like, oh, students aren't motivated unless you give them a grade or you give them points. I'm just like, are you stupid? Like, are you really, did you really just say that? They'd be better without grades. They'd be better without grades. They would do more. Yeah. Like if we gave them purpose, like we should be talking about purpose. This, I felt like distance learning was this opportunity to stop doing these arbitrary things we think work that actually don't, we think they work, but we know they don't and start coming yeah. up with more like actual things that work. I still think distance learning is going to be that because we are in a time of just rapid technology advancement, rapid just advancement in just everything we know as as it is. Um, schools are changing the way they're going to do things, and I think it's going to evolve from what it is right now into something completely different over time if, if, if we continue on being locked down like we are. Um, and I think the evidence is in the fact that 
over the past 10 to 15 years, we've seen the technology uh, in terms of the capabilities for for online interaction and and that type of thing just changed so much. Just the accessibility to mobile platforms, and I think we're just we're gonna see like you're talking about the same thing with work and automation in the workplace. We're gonna see automation in the school setting, and I think we're gonna see just so many different ways that. Uh, these old ways of doing things and these old ways of, of even evaluating kids on their abilities is going to just be so outdated. I mean, I think not maybe in my lifetime, but definitely in my daughter's and our kids' lifetimes. I think it's just going to be completely different. I think the control thing is I'm hoping at least because distance learning has forced teachers to let go of control. They couldn't let go. It was ripped out of their hands. And yeah. they're still trying though some of them they, oh i know <laughs> trust me i know <laughs> but I, and i'm hoping what will happen is that they'll see that like you know like kids do better when they're not micromanaged when they're mm-hmm. allowed to follow their curiosity and they're given that they're given that feeling that the adult trusts them i think that's another thing too i i i feel my students respond best when when i trust them and if i and even a lot of the conversations I've been having in distance learning are kind of focused around integrity. That's like the word of the year for me is like, have the integrity to do the right thing. And if they don't do the right thing, having that conversation of like, you know, I really trusted you to do that. And Mm -hmm. seeing the response that they have to that, that, oh man, like I really let my teacher down. That's what I want. That's the, I want students to respond to that. I don't want to me. That just made me think of a really specific student. I had him twice. I had, or I think I may have had him three times. I had him his freshman year, his junior year, and his senior year. I did have him three times. His freshman year, um, he was just kind of struggling in every sense of that word. He had like some family stuff going on. He uh, didn't have the best grades. He didn't have the best relationship with his teachers. Um, even with me, it was it was like a constant struggle. I think he finished probably like the DF range uh, in terms of grades. And I guess I just did a good enough job of like humanizing him and treating him like a person with feelings and emotions and real um, things of value. Um, So when I had him his junior year, he told me after he completed the class, he's like, I knew this year I had to prove to you that I could be what you believed I could be. And he got an A in that class. It It was just so great. And I was like, I'm doing something right. I may not be doing everything right, but something is working. Yeah. And those are those moments that really like make you want to stay like you're just like, man, Mm -hmm. if I can get that kid who all this time before they came to me was was living this self-fulfilling prophecy because they've been told that, oh, you're the kind of kid who doesn't make it. And then they're Mm -hmm. just like, I'm the kind of kid who doesn't make it. And then they get to you or, you know, to us. And if you can turn them and like make them see that, like you don't have to live that story. Like that doesn't have to be your story. You get to choose it. Like that's like, I wish we could do it for all the kids, but like if you can always get one, it's just like, it just feels so good. It just feels like. Um, Over the last five years, uh, I have had a, a habit. I would guess, I guess I would call it where I've ended up making like hyper masculine boys cry and have like a little a little bit of a breakdown <laughs> just by like challenging that idea of like toxic masculinity and uh like all of that nonsense that comes with that um and just like trying to make them rethink things 
uh, and trying to make them realize that, like, like you were saying, this is not the life you have to lead. You're not locked into this box and you don't have to be what your family expects from you. You don't have to be what you think you expect from yourself. You can be whatever you want to be. And it, it's just, I really hope I get a kid this year <laughs> just to keep my record going. But, but it's like every year it's been like incredibly powerful, like for me too. And it, it moves me and it changes me. And I think it, it makes me think differently about what purpose I have in life. And it, it, and it, it, it all boils down to helping people. Like I really just want to help people become better people. Yeah. Or better for whatever they need. I have, um, I think, I I sometimes feel like those students, the the hyper masculine students, it, it it something about it resonates more when it comes from a male teacher. I don't think I think they're mm-hmm. so used to. First of all, they're used to having more female teachers than male teachers because we don't have enough male teachers, especially in the elementary level, and then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just generally coming from a woman, it's just kind of treated as like, well, of course, you're a woman. You think we should be sensitive. And you but, have emotions. Yeah, you're, so you're the emotional ones. But I, you made me think of a student I had as a senior, and he's like this – he was like a stereotypical football player, like linebacker type. And he was a big boy. Um, he had a full beard. He was like a full man by senior year. And, um, and he was, you know, he – he got along with the guys and he was real cool. He was real sweet. Just, I think his natural temperament was to just be a polite person generally. But what really still struck me was when he told me he was a poet and he said, I discovered, and I go, you are, he was, he was like, yeah, I started writing poetry after Mr. Canapa, which is actually another teacher I interviewed. Um, and he's a, um, he's a rapper. He raps by night, teaches by day. So he's all about lyrics and poetry and all those things. And so he said, after I was in his class, he had us write poetry and I discovered I was a poet and I I hadn't realized it. And now I write poetry all the time. And so he would send me his poems and he told the whole class too. He said it one day, they were like, what? And they started laughing. He goes, don't laugh. I'm being serious. I'm a poet. And he was like, and I just, it was the same thing. Like, I feel like, like Canapa, another male teacher who's, who's also very, sensitive like mild-mannered male he's not hyper masculine um he got to him he he got to him and then he even by senior year when we were talking about career possibilities um he still wanted to go to school and play football like he's still all about football but then he said he wanted to be an english teacher and it was because of that that other english teacher that's great and it was just such a heartwarming thing to see like that he, he got through to him um and now the world's going to have this great English teacher, you know, another male mm-hmm. English teacher someday. And who is going to be able to relate to all of those kids who are just like him. Exactly. All the football players and the, the athletes, the male athletes who are rappers, think, the rappers. They're so hard to get to. I feel like in an English class, you get these kids that they just want to be superstar athletes. And then you're like, but I need you to write a really beautiful story about yourself. And then they just write about how I'm going to be the best football player of all time. And it's just, you know, and, and this kid, it wasn't, you know, he still said sometimes write about being an athlete, but then he, he even shared a poem he wrote to his girlfriend because he wanted it to be good. So he was like, I'm going to turn this one in because I need you to edit it because I'm going to read it to her at prom. Like it was just like super sweet. So I love those stories. Can you tell me a little bit more about, uh, the 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 student population over in at Chavez, because um, I'm interested in in that. So uh, we have a, a fairly diverse population. Um, I wish I had the numbers in front of me, 
but uh, we have a, a large amount of black students. We have a large amount of uh, Latino students, uh, a large amount of Asian students, uh, I think predominantly South Asian. Don't quote me on that, but I think. Um, so it's, it's pretty diverse except for like our staff. Our staff isn't so diverse. We have, we have some people, but that's, that's that problem in education. Yes. Um, we don't have people who look like our students teaching our students who've gone through the same thing. And I think that's another reason why I'm, I feel like I'm stuck in Stockton because I feel like I have to be that person for my students to see like somebody from your neighborhood can make it, can be successful and, and have a good time and, and really truthfully enjoy what they're doing. Because we know we're not in it for the money. Definitely <laughs> not in it for the money. And I think that's such a good point too, that yeah, the same thing at our school, um, our, our school's always had the reputation of being the white district, which we are no longer. We have a predominantly Hispanic, Hispanic demographic, and especially at the high school. I think almost half our student, last I checked, it was 47% of our student demographic was Hispanic. Um, but 11% of our teaching staff is Hispanic. And it's really frustrating. And I bring it up all the time. I'm that one who's always like, uh, we still have too many white teachers. <laughs> we just, <Yeah. laughs> I, we should at least have as many percentage-wise Hispanic teachers as we have Hispanic students. Like that should at least be a thing and it's not. And it's really frustrating. Um, now I know Lincoln's been around since at least the, what, 60s? No, 1954, I think. Okay, was right different. before, yeah. But what about Chavez? How long has Chavez been around? Uh, Chavez opened, I want to say, it was 2004. Oh, wow. Maybe it was 2005. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's our newest comprehensive high school in SUSD. Um, that doesn't mean it's, like, up to date or fancy or anything. We have other students, other schools that have been renovated more recently. But uh, it, it was originally our arts magnet. So originally uh, all types of performing and visual arts the students from the district would kind of come here. So like the superstars of the campus were those like people, multi-hyphenate people who were like actors and dancers and singers and they were in band and dance and they just did everything. Uh, but it's shifted since then. We no longer have magnet schools in our district, which I think is probably a better change. Um, Why do you say that? Well, it has, it has, it has goods and bads, I think. Um, it, on the surface, it means that there are these programs at every high school now, mm. but... Okay. It's also like you can't really have that super specialized, this is going to be your focus in high school uh, kind of I thing. Um, I totally lost my train of thought. You were just saying how like the kids that used to be real popular were those who were involved in all these different performing arts. and. Oh, yeah. And it's really funny now because like those are the kids that everybody makes fun of now. Like all of the band kids, they, they call them F building kids because that's where our arts building is now. Um, and like... I, I always have to bring it up to my kids. Like, no, this used to be the cool thing. Like, that, if you did all that, you were, like, the coolest kids in school. Uh, like, they literally would win, like, homecoming king and queen every year. Um, and the you were players, going there, obviously. that's what it was like. Oh, no, that, so you didn't get to see his bio. Mm -hmm. He, so when you were going there, that's how it was. But uh, Mr. Heyman is here, won 2018 teacher prom king. Uh, I did. <laughs> I, I, I won. I am, I am royal, actually. In the presence of royalty. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, and that okay. all started as like a prank. Uh, so <laughs> me and another teacher, Miss Cuevas, shout out to her. Um, we we went to our student activities director's classroom one day, like just before prom, and made a bunch of fake prom uh, like 
you know how when they're they're running for prom they put posters everywhere yeah we made a bunch of posters and just taped them to his door and like his hallway so when he came in that morning all he saw was like Cuevas and Jimenez for prom king and queen and then uh in minutes that turned into like 10 different people launching campaigns for prom king and queen oh my god um <laughs> but we won uh with with very limited cheating like i only had my kids vote for like 10 minutes straight um but it was just like again it goes back to like humanizing teachers and students and just being willing to have fun and break that mold of like this is class time you can't no smiling right yeah no it oh gosh i think class has to i I was telling this to somebody, I don't know if it was in an interview or not, but we have to be entertaining. Like this, especially with this generation, you really have to be an entertainer. And mm-hmm. and I'm okay with that. I know a lot of teachers aren't, <laughs> but I think that's something to consider when going into teaching nowadays is you do have to be a little bit entertaining because oh yes. that's how you learn. I mean, and I think about it though, when I think about times I've been in classes from kindergarten through college and I have a master's degree now, when I'm in a class, when I'm bored, I don't remember what I learned. I didn't learn. That's why I don't remember mm-hmm. anything. When I'm in a classes where I had a lot of fun and the professor was fun and the class had a good vibe, I learned a lot in those classes. And this idea that like, no, you've got to be able to do it's, you know, you should even if it's boring, you should pay attention and learn. It's I'm like, have you remembered the last time you were truly bored? Have you really thought like these are the same people who complain about the staff meetings being too long and boring. And it's like, but you want your class to be like a staff meeting that you hate. What? (laughs) I have, I have like two, two things. Uh, I all, first off, it's always so funny when admin tells us like not to do uh, an hour long lecture in a staff meeting that is an hour long lecture. Uh, like every meeting is like that. They're like, don't do this. And then they just do the thing the whole time. <laughs> um, the other thing I wanted to bring up, uh, that that video that we've all seen, every educator's seen it a thousand times, Rita Pearson, every yes. child deserves a champion. Rest in um, peace, she passed away. She, yes, I know. Literally devastating because she is phenomenal. Yes. Um, but if you haven't seen that video, go watch it immediately. It, it's great. I watch it every time it comes up in a training. I'm like fully into it. But it is, we do have to excite and entertain our kids to be successful. I think she says, like, kids don't learn from teachers they don't like. Exactly, yeah. Um, wow. So I feel like I, I have a second career as, like, a singer in my classroom. <laughs> I act. I uh, am a stand-up comic. I just feel like I, I do so much. So whenever I leave teaching, I have many options. <laughs> I can tell you're very talented. I just want to Thank put that you. out there. Thank you. He definitely had us rolling when we were in our credentialing program, which also there were many moments of boredom. <laughs> and then Just a few hundred. Our little table group, as we called it, constantly whispering under our breath little insults and jokes <laughs> to keep each other awake. <laughs> so I want to go back a little bit because um, this is a really important thing to me, uh, and I'm in, very interested in it. So your, your school came around in 2004, very, very uh, diverse student body, but still uh, pretty white as in, in terms of like the staff that is working there. Where do you, um, I, guess, I don't know, do you have like a support group of staff members that you kind of associate with? And then have you found yep. the mentors um, within your, within your uh, administration or 
or the counseling department, I guess. Uh, like, wh- how do you, how do you navigate that, that uh, community? Uh, so, I feel like you have to find that group, that little group that you you click with and you get along with, or else teaching is just a miserable and solitary experience. <laughs> so I do have my little group. Um, we have too many group texts. Uh, it's hard <laughs> to keep track sometimes. Uh, but it's literally just like survival. It's like a lot of the times it's like, what would you do for this? Or um, can you believe that so-and-so said this? It's a little gossipy, but not not too bad. Um, <laughs> but it, it's it's literally like the reason I am still teaching mm. is is my, my peers who I really vibe with. Wow. Um, last year, a few of us were asked to be on our CRT team, which is culturally responsive teaching. Mm. Um, not going to get into that. <laughs> but this year, uh, this year we started a little, uh, or I, I wasn't involved in starting it, but I became a part of it pretty early on, um, a little learning collective on campus and just trying to improve who we are as people and as teachers uh, and breaking down those things, like like the fact that white supremacy is in every part of our school. Um, and it, it just feels survivable now having that group, it feels like I, um, I know that I'm no longer alone in this fight. I feel like people are on my side and they want to make the same changes I want to make. Uh, and they want to do right by the kids, which is really all it boils down to is trying to do what is best. Now, when, you, when you say that, uh, when you speak about white supremacy at your school, the thing that, that comes to mind for, from what I'm aware of in terms of like, um, Lincoln High, for example, or the Lincoln School District, is that it was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, used to be a part of the segregated part of Stockton, right? Mm-hmm. Due to redlining. Um, in that case, like one of the things that I like to, you know, throw out there is like, I wonder who is or who was the first minority student to attend Lincoln High. You know, that kind of question to me is very yeah. important for your local history. You know, maintaining the a relevant sort of connection to what that means to have discrimination and in your city, in your, in your school. Um, uh, what type of issues have you seen in your school where you see that that's uh, still a, a problem? Uh, it's mostly in like the value we place in our, in our staff members and in the respect we, we give to our staff members. Mm. Uh, despite like experience and actual work that people have done in certain fields, mm. uh, it's typically white men who rise to the top the the quickest Mm. um they're the ones who get the focus and get any supports they need and they get to do things and experiment without any challenge whereas uh specifically like black women and and women of color on our campus are routinely challenged and they are routinely uh made to feel like they are a problem to work with or they are um not valued just straight up like disrespected not treated like a human um Mm -hmm. And it's it's frustrating by other it's staff members. Heartbreaking, yeah. Oh wow. Um, it, it's uh, I don't want to go into like any specific details sure, that can get sure, people yeah. in trouble. Uh, <laughs> no, and that's fine. another thing of like white supremacy. Why can't we just talk about it? Why can't we right. just talk about respect. these problems? Yeah, no. um, but but like people are being straight up disrespectful mm-hmm. to other people of color uh, on our campus, and and the people who are rising to the top don't always have anything to back them up yeah so do you feel like there is an uh like a a method for for people that experience that 
uh, that sort of discrimination to address that situation or is it just not available to them? Uh, I feel like in a lot of cases, it feels like it's not available uh, to them. It feels like there's nothing they can do to fix it because of how prevalent it is in society, not just in our school system. Mm. Um, and, and I also think it's important to realize that, like, I don't think anybody is, well, I'm sure people are intentionally doing it, but I don't think the majority of people are intentionally putting this value into white male voices over black women. But it feels like... Um, that is what's happening. Like, I don't, I don't want to straight up call somebody racist, but when you do racist things, like, <laughs> what, what do you say? <laughs> it's definitely, I mean, I think, like, we talk about, like, implicit bias that exists, like, and you can't, I heard somebody say this recently, like, when you're born into a racist society, no matter what ethnic group you come from, you're going to absorb racism. And um, mm-hmm. in that, you're going to, and then you're going to put it back out. And that's where, like, a lot of implicit bias comes from and that's what the whole conversation has been trying to point out is that overt racism is a thing but so is subversive racism and 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 unconscious racism and the only way that you're going to be aware of something that you're unconscious about is when somebody brings it to your consciousness and and then and then we can learn to do that for ourselves which we should do and that, that is something that you have to learn. I think it's been hard for me. Like I can think of not just when it comes to race, I had to like self-reflect on my implicit biases, but when it came to the LGBTQ community, when it comes mm-hmm. to the disabled community, like I feel like right now the disabled community one is the one I, I is like in my priority because it's the one I put off the most. And I think everybody mm-hmm. does. But um, like really like doing that work of thinking about like how do I do things that enable racism how do i how do i behave in a way that enables ableism how do i you know and that takes a lot of work but it does happen i see what you're saying it's like it's we're born into a racist society so we are going to do things even black people born into a racist society have internalized racism that they're not even aware of sometimes and that's just it's it's something that we have all of us have a responsibility to be aware of and and yeah you're right it's hard when it's like like you said we can't talk about it, when you see somebody doing something racist you just want to be like well you're you're being racist and and then people are really triggered by that word and mm-hmm. because they don't understand like all the complexity that comes with what racism actually is it's it's complex right i think people are still th- thinking like well i never say the n word so how can that possibly yeah. be and it's like all right man let me break this down for you okay so Rosie actually, she interviewed me, I think it was for a project um, in the master's program she was in, uh, where she was asking mm-hmm. me about like uh, my feelings on diversity in uh, the school that my daughter attends, which is John R. Williams. And at the time, I remember in the discussion, we were talking about like, does the demographics of the school matter so much uh, about, you know, what, or, or, you know, what really makes a, a, a population of students diverse or what what makes it uh, one that is inclusive of diversity, I should say. And mm-hmm. to me, the main thing is like this. Well, how much of your students are aware of their own culture? Mm-hmm. Like, to me, that's the biggest question. Because if you, if you go to this school and we only learn about these historical figures that are, are sort of the majority, you know, the classic, you know, <laughs> Washington, Lincoln... You know, and then Martin Luther King Jr. You're allowed to learn about him, 
And like, the how, how often are we talking stories. about Cesar Chavez? How often are we talking about, uh, you know, Jose Brasal? Yeah. Like, what what are the stories that are behind these people? And then locally, yeah, you know, what about our local heroes? Like, who who knows about the the like I like I, I like I always ask that question: Who was the first minority to attend that school? Yeah. I mean, it's amazing to me that that's a lost, you know, point of knowledge right there. But like. It was probably and it's so close to where we are. Exactly. Like it is not long ago. Like Ruby Bridges is well known, but she's still alive. We don't still even alive. think about that. <laughs> like she's That's not a... even really that old. And I think like with the we talk about the local heroes too. Like we're thinking of like Dolores Huerta was from Stockton, and mm-hmm. we did not learn. I didn't learn about her in school. I had to learn about her in college. We talk, we talk about, I, I was in another interview, we were talking about how um, Anthony had to teach me about the Filipino culture and Larry Itliong and like all of the, the work that was done um, in Stockton and around the Central Valley by Filipino farm workers. And, you know, I had no idea. I should have learned that in my school in the city where all of this happened. <laughs> like we live in a city where these really prominent people were here. And they were doing the work here. And I didn't learn that until I was in college or until I met someone who happened to know about it. You know, that's if we're not teaching that to our students, what are we teaching them? (laughs) The only time I learned about Chavez in an academic setting was in college, even though I went to Chavez High School. Right. (laughs) Like I went to a high school named after him and still didn't get anything this is the stuff that enrages me like you're talking about diversity you want to have like you know i heard that you is it true that you have a mariachi band yes we Travis do we have a phenomenal okay, see, you program you can't have a mariachi band and not ever talk about you know the yeah. history of the people behind the music i just think it's crazy that we I know have it's, it's, it's definitely better now than it was when i went to high school okay but but uh, still it's yeah. like why why was that a problem in 2010 right come that on that was not long ago long <laughs> ago enough for that to have been a problem it, it that that's the part that just i'm like okay so you you know congratulations we have, we have a very diverse student body but how much of the time are we dedicating to making sure they know a little bit about their mm-hmm. own local heroes their own the cultural people that are that are involved in in the making of this America. It's like, what are we, what are we doing? Why is this not? Why isn't it prioritized? It's it's and it's often omitted. I think it's just that's the biggest shame to me, and that's the only way we're ever going to get past racism because we have to acknowledge what the past was, and how recent that past really was, and then there there from there, once we're once we're that at that level, then I think we can make steps. But we're not even we're not even barely making any steps right now. I think the problem, too, is that requires us to go back to what we were saying earlier and acknowledge that, like, we are not flawless. We have made mistakes as a society, as people. We have done wrong things. And until we're willing to, like, say, like, okay, I was wrong, we're not going to move it forward at all. Yeah, and I, I tell my students that a lot. Like, it's hard to admit you're wrong. It's it's embarrassing to acknowledge when you've done something hurtful and that's what comes with that self-reflection of of the society we were born into. We were born and conditioned to treat certain people a certain way. And to realize that you do that in an unconscious level is still painful. But I think what the what we have to look at is that that's if we did something racist based on an implicit bias that we didn't realize we had and somebody calls us out on it instead of getting mad at the person 
we should be getting mad that we too are being harmed by racism even if we are not black mm -hmm. you know it's like that racism harms everybody sexism harms everybody homophobia transphobia yep. like ableism it harms everyone and that's one of the ways it shows up is that you do something you didn't even realize you were doing because you've been conditioned to just take it for granted to have that realization that oh my god i've been taught to do this thing and i didn't even know it was a painful thing for somebody that's that's painful for us to, to find out and for anybody you know so it's and that's just part of accepting that this is a society we're born into and that we are all being harmed by it in some way, in some capacity. But we can improve yeah. if we just recognize the issue and then we can move forward. But yeah, people just wanna, people wanna just say, no, the world started right now and everything you <laughs> see is a result of whatever these people have within them. Like each individual, you know, is, is going through exactly what they're going through because that's what they're made of. That's the only reason and there's nothing else. It's like, actually, <laughs> hold up <laughs> there's context and let's think about that and what does that really mean it makes things much more complex it makes us um have to think harder and do hard work but we need to do it because i think from a, a strictly utilitarian position it's just inefficient mm -hmm. not to we i mean like if we sit around and we waste our time hurting each other and freaking lying to each other about like a person's quality based off of their background we're not going to be able to identify the best at something. We're not going to be able to encourage those people who should be pursuing certain goals. We're going to overlook them because we're going to have assumptions about who they are based off of their, their freaking background. Their, their, you know, their, the color of their freaking skin. What, you know, yeah. it's, it's amazing. It's really amazing that we can't figure I, this out. And this is why the robots are taking over. <laughs> maybe they should take over is the point of this um, maybe they, they should Jordan, hey, we for, just, for clarity we, we just did about a little more than an hour and a half so I wanted to say thank you for um, you know sitting down and chatting with us and I really look forward to the next time where we uh, we can do this and have beers in, in, in person I think that would be amazing yes <laughs> no more digital meetings hopefully we can do that safely soon Thank you so much for listening to Educators Not Robots. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like our podcast, please subscribe on whatever platform you access your podcasts on and leave us a review. Whenever we get reviews, it helps boost visibility for our podcast and so we can draw in more listeners. Thanks again for your support and we hope that you listen again soon.